The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the potential merger between grocery store giants Kroger and Albertsons. So basically, one company could control uh, a huge, huge portion of the food distribution system in America. Like most giant corporate mergers, this one could have devastating effects on the company's employees and you, me, and the rest of the American eating public. Uh, to help explain everything you need to know about this issue, I spoke with journalist Mo Tekasik, who's been covering this story for months, and I also talked to Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser, who's leading a multi-state antitrust investigation into the merger. If you're somebody who eats food, if you're somebody who needs food to survive, you'll want to hear this one. Uh, this week, our paid subscribers will also get our bonus segment, One Thing, in which the Levers reporters discuss the one thing that's been most on their minds. This week, they discuss a potential strike at UPS. They discuss how to hold a liberal intervention. And they discuss former Federal Reserve Chair Larry Summers, his call for more unemployment while he was literally on vacation in the tropics. If you want access to Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, Share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. And as always, I'm here with producer Frank. What's up, producer Frank? Not much, David. Uh, a little sleepy today, but you know, uh, getting getting back get back in, into the the work energy of 2023. You know, this is like our first official week back. I mean, we were here last week, but everyone treats the second week of the new year as like the real first week of work. You know what I mean? This is when it begins. And uh, speaking of which, we should mention before we get into a discussion about the uh, the big merger uh, of big food. Um, Looks like the House finally did get back to work, the House of Representatives, um, in that uh, shit show circus uh, about uh, who was going to be elected speaker. Uh, last week, Republican House members, uh, who again uh, won the House narrowly in the 2022 midterms, um, they held 15 separate votes to confirm a new speaker of the House. Former House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was the Republican establishment's choice for the post. But with such a slim majority, he had trouble securing the votes he needed to be uh, confirmed. That's because several of the more extremist right-wing Republican House members refused to confirm him. After 15 votes, McCarthy was finally confirmed, but not until he agreed to big concessions to the far right flank of his party. Some of the concessions included uh, any member can call for a motion to vacate the speaker's chair, one of these like votes of confidence things. Uh, there's also this uh, sort of disgusting, gross deal. A McCarthy-aligned super PAC agreed to not spend in open Republican primaries. Uh, this was a huge story in corporate media, all of this stuff. And I, I have a little 
little bit of a different take. Uh, my take is, is that it didn't really matter who the Republicans uh, made speaker. They're all very, very similar. Um, I mean, I guess it mattered at the margins. Uh, my take is also that while a lot of liberals were laughing at the process and touting the fact, for instance, that Nancy Pelosi uh, was elected without, you know, nine times without any dissent at all. I actually, my, my take is that what we watched in the House is is small d democracy in action, that the Republican Party actually seems to be somewhat more small d democratic inside of its own party, at least among its politicians, than the Democratic Party. That the Democratic Party, there's no dissent, and there's barely any conversation, uh, and that what we watched is like, I mean, if you, if, if, if you consider yourself a fan of democracy, then what you saw in the House was that's what democracy is like people arguing, people uh, making concessions, people pushing, people negotiating. You, you don't see that in the Democratic Party. Now, I, I'm not thrilled about what, what that process created, right? I'm not thrilled about the concessions that McCarthy had to make. Uh, I'm not thrilled about uh, who, which side of the ideological spectrum actually ended up winning. But my take is that that's democracy. And then, and then my last take on this is that. Yes, it's important, I guess, who's in the majority of, of the House and who's, who's the speaker. But there was so much media attention on that and so little attention on, on things that are actually matter and that are going to matter even more uh, in this year in politics. And I'm talking about executive action. Look, for all intents and purposes, there's a very, very good likelihood uh, that nothing is going to come out of the Congress and that any action that happens in government is going to be executive action. Like we've been reporting on the airline rule. And last week there was this, uh, the Biden administration released this uh, proposal uh, against uh, non-competes to help workers make more money. Like that's where the, to my mind, that's likely where the real action in American politics is going to be, not a kind of this this performative circus in the Congress, in a Congress that's likely going to be gridlocked. I, I would ask you, Producer Frank, does, does that sound crazy? Like, am I am I going to be accused of like not caring about what happens in in Congress? Be, I just feel like everyone's addicted to the performative nature of politics, and we have a problem where what actually matters, what's actually happening, gets almost no attention. Oh, you'll definitely be accused of, uh, of, of like, I don't know, sabotaging the Democratic Party of, you know, like being, I'm like, used to that uh, accusation, uh, you know, essentially being, you know, a right winger. You know, we all know this, this about you. No, I, I, <laughs> I completely agree. It was really disheartening to see how much air this, this whole event sucked up in the media. Like you were saying, you know, it's just everyone was kind of treating it like a circus. Liberals were, were laughing. They were having a field day. Ha ha ha. Republicans in disarray. Um, I saw a bunch of friends of my, liberal friends of mine on socials doing the same thing. Um, it's a real bummer because as you said, we have not seen you know, in the Democratic Party in the House, we have not seen the squad. We have not seen the Progressive Caucus ever try to wield power in the way that these, you know, right, the right wing faction of the Republican House members did in this speakership election. I mean, uh, I saw on Twitter our buddy uh, Armand Aviram, who does videos here for The Lever, tweeted something along the lines of like, you know, this this concession they got about, uh, you know, the not having the McCarthy super PAC spend against, you know, uh, right wing Republicans. That's like the equivalent of 
had the squad been like, hey, we don't want APAC spending against progressives anymore. Like that, like that in and of itself, that would be an amazing concession if to, to get out of uh, an event like this if the squad or the progressive caucus ever, ever wanted to use their power and withhold their votes. Yeah, they they never do that. They 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 never they almost never withhold their votes at all. I mean, there was that there's that one time where six of them tried to withhold their votes on whether to keep I think it was whether to keep the infrastructure bill connected to the so-called build back better bill. And they had a bunch of them had promised to do it. And only six of them ended up doing it. I mean, they never withhold their votes. And it goes back to the culture. I mean, the culture inside the Democratic Party is a, is a somewhat anti-democratic culture uh, in terms of uh, dissent, in terms of, of, of brinksmanship, in terms of uh, negotiating. You, 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 you've just never seen that. And and look, I, I want to be clear, like, I think it was kind of funny that it took Kevin McCarthy, however many, you know, 10, 15 votes to actually get himself in the speakership chair. I mean, that there is something funny about that, about the guy like trying and trying and trying like that. That's funny. But I don't think that like like the idea that the process is crazy or like it's hilarious that they're like, oh, it's like, you know, this is bad or this shows that the Republicans don't have their act together. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But that is what democracy looks like. Like that's literally what it's, frankly, what it's supposed to look like is, is, is people arguing, people holding out, people, uh, uh, negotiating, people making demands. Like this is what politics is supposed to actually be. And so often, um, isn't. It's so often isn't. And I don't think it's the, the Democrats touting that their politics aren't like that is the Democrats touting a kind of top down command and control of their party where dissent uh, and uh, negotiation and pushing and pulling is is really not tolerated. And frankly, th- that's a bad thing. And I want to, again, just reiterate before we move on here. I want to reiterate, I am not saying that the process uh, delivered ideologically what I want or what I support. I'm just saying the process itself is not something to laugh at. The process itself is actually democracy. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview about this huge merger that could affect your access uh, to basic food at the grocery and could affect uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of workers across the country. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be discussing this huge merger between Kroger and Albertson. It's a proposed merger right now. Back in October, these two grocery giants announced plans to merge, with Kroger acquiring Albertsons for almost $25 billion. The two chains currently operate about 5,000 grocery stores across the country. Now, like most corporate mergers, the two companies claim that the move is going to allow them to compete with grocery behemoths like Walmart and Amazon, and they claim that it will result in better pay for employees and lower prices for customers. You always hear that, oh, mergers are going to be lower prices. But as we all know, corporate monopolies tend to do the opposite of what they claim they'll do. How do we know this? Well, back in 2014, Albertsons merged with Safeway, another huge grocery operator, Employees and customers were promised the same thing, better pay, lower prices. But when all was said and done, the new company laid off over 8,000 of its employees and closed more than 100 of its stores. Store closures like this, let's be clear, groceries, these are not kind of, you don't need these stores in your neighborhood. These are necessities. 
Store closures like this can be super devastating in non-urban areas in particular where food deserts can leave residents with little to no option for buying the food they need to survive. To make matters worse, there are a number of private equity firms with big stakes in these stores who hope to make huge profits from this proposed merger and these kinds of mergers. If you know anything about private equity, and you know we report on it a lot here at The Lever, their business model isn't to make businesses better, but rather to strip mine companies for as much cash as possible. You saw the private equity industry kind of dramatized through Gordon Gecko in the, in the famous movie Wall Street. You know, he talks about asset stripping, stripping the company down, selling it for parts. And in fact, this has already happened. Shortly after uh, the Albertsons Kroger merger was announced, Albertsons announced it would be paying out a $4 billion dividend to shareholders in connection with the proposed acquisition. So $4 billion going uh, to the financial engineers and shareholders behind this. Though luckily, this giant cash grab, let's add this, has been temporarily blocked, at least for now, after the Washington's uh, attorney general, the state of Washington, uh, he filed a motion to try to stop it. To help break down this pretty complicated story, but a story, even though it is complicated, that could affect your access to groceries and could affect the livelihoods uh, of hundreds of thousands of workers, could affect neighborhoods all across this country. I spoke with journalist Mo Tekasik, who's been covering this issue for the last several months. And we also talked to Colorado's Democratic Attorney General, Phil Weiser, who recently launched a multi-state antitrust investigation into the proposed merger. Hey, Mo, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing, doing as well as I could be. <laughs> Phil, how you doing? It's always good to be with you, David. Thanks for joining us, both of you. So let's start with Mo. You, Mo, you've written extensively about the recent financial histories of both Kroger and Albertsons. Without going down the private equity rabbit hole too much, just give us a little background on some of their shady practices that have led up to this point, to this merger or proposed merger. I guess the way I would put it is that when private equity buys a company, it's not like a normal merger or acquisition. Um, it's much more common these days, but they sort of buy it almost like in a manner akin to a money laundering operation. They wrest control of assets um, and extract as much uh, cash as possible out of them. So when Cerberus started buying Albertsons, they closed most of the stores that they sold um, because they thought, well, more pricing power, the fewer stores we've got, the more pricing power we have. And they sold off the real estate and they um, shut down about two thirds of the stores initially. So that's basically what we're looking at here. And they're um, right now they're trying to uh, extract a $4 billion cash dividend on their way out, on their way to selling the um, company to Kroger. So more of the same. And, and we'll get to that, that 4 billion in just a second. I wanna ask Phil the question of the real world impact Let's start with that uh, of the Albertsons Kroger merger. I mean, I'm here in Denver. You're here in Denver. Uh, uh, Kroger through King Supers and the like. They're, they're the one of the big uh, the big grocery stores. What happens in your mind, or what could happen if this merger actually goes through? What does it look like for consumers, the co the company's customers? What does it look like for the company's workers potentially? Let me start by acknowledging. This is a quintessential consumer product that consumers understand. We can and should have conversations about the nature of our economy, including private equity, including concentration in a range of markets that hurt consumers. 
This conversation doesn't require a lot of translation because when you talk to consumers about what does it mean to have their King Supers and their Safeway stores owned by the same person, they say, I can tell you what it means. I'm going to go from two choices to one. There are consumers today all around Colorado, some in communities in Denver, but others in Windsor, Colorado, or in Grand Junction, Colorado, who know what they buy from King Supers, who know what they buy from Safeways, who will look at the milk prices at one store and the other and make choices. You have a merger. It ends those choices. So this is a merger that I'm deeply concerned about because consumers are worried, and we're hearing those worries. In fact, we're going to go on a roadshow to hear directly from consumers about their worries so we understand what's at stake. This is a rare antitrust case where ordinary citizens living their lives are relevant experts and, frankly, could be testifying to their life experience and what's at stake. Two other fronts, quickly. Workers also don't need a lot of explanation because they may well have worked at a Safeway and now they're working at a King Supers. Well, they lose the ability to have choice in where they're working. They lose the options for another job because, as we know from past history, Mo's already alluded to it, you see mergers go through and often store closings are part of the calculus. And finally, this is a third dimension. For people who want to sell in a grocery store, Having more shelf space options creates easier entry. The more concentrated markets are, the harder it is to enter as a food entrepreneur. Okay, so I, I want to ask you the devil's advocate question. And as, as, not only as Colorado's attorney general, but somebody who served in the U.S. Justice Department on antitrust issues. You always hear uh, during these mergers uh, this idea that, well, if these two big companies in whatever industry uh, – merge together, they can create efficiencies, they can get rid of so-called redundancies, and that's supposedly going to be good for consumers in the sense of uh, the savings will bring down the pricey, the prices of the goods. You can imagine that argument. I'm sure Albertsons and Kroger have made it. We'll continue making it. Hey, if we get together, uh, this is just going to be a much more efficient food delivery system, which will pass on good benefits to, uh, customers who don't, this would be the argument, who don't care if they're buying their loaf of bread at Safeway or, uh, or at King Supers. They just want the loaf of bread uh, to be a good price. What do you say to that? So there's a lot I can say. The first thing I can say is as a general matter, when you study concentration in industries and you, you make the argument that it generates more efficiencies that get passed on to consumers, it doesn't hold up. From a standpoint of consumer benefits, consumers get more. They're the ones who benefit when they have choices in the marketplace. When we have less choice and more concentration, what often will happen is you'll get more, and you'll hear this phrase a lot, tacit collusion. The companies who are left in the marketplace have an easier time signaling to one another, here's what I'm going to charge, and consumers are the one left holding that bag, and whatever greater efficiencies happen, those efficiencies don't get passed on to consumers. They get captured in the form of profits. The final point I want to add, a more, let's call it, efficient supply chain is also a less resilient supply chain. When you have, for example, more concentration in airlines, another topic we can talk about at some point, <laughs> and you have um, single points of failure, less consumer choice, consumers are more vulnerable when bad things happen. So, for example, if the milk supply chain of a Kroger's is disrupted, 
well, you'll go to Safeway to get your milk. But what if it's a merged firm and it's got a single supply chain, using your words, that's more efficient? If it gets disrupted, then whole communities have no access to milk. Mo, I want to go back to the point you made about $4 billion. Back in early November, you wrote a piece for Slate about how uh, this group of private equity firms attempted to extract $4 billion from Albertsons leading up to this potential merger. Just tell us a little bit more about that. What were, how did they extract $4 billion? Why is that relevant in the discussion about this merger? It's a pretty classic move, but Cerberus had been trying to sell out of Albertsons for some time. They had been trying to. Cerberus has made a lot of really poor investments. This is the big private equity firm, Cerberus. Right. Cer- yeah, Cerberus is the, the primary private equity firm that we're talking about. Um, they've made a lot of really uh, dog shit investments um, over the past, <laughs> excuse my language, um, uh, uh, over the past 15 years. Um, they haven't lost much money on any of those investments. Let's be clear that that is for the workers, that is for the customers, that is for their creditors. So they haven't lost much money, but they haven't made as much money as some of the other private equity uh, firms that they compete with for uh, pension fund allocations. So they were very eager to make bank on um, Albertsons. They tried to take it public in 2015. Nobody wanted it because they loaded so much debt onto the balance sheet that it was really an un- you know, unattractive investment. A lot of uh, investors back then thought, hey, they can't really, you know, they're, they're going to have trouble competing. We're not going to really get anything here. Pandemic comes along. They say, yes, this is our chance. They file to go public and um, investors still aren't that interested because, you know, it's, it's still got a lot of debt. So they sell uh, $1.75 billion in preferred equity to, to uh, Apollo. That's uh, brings in the perhaps the only uh, private equity firm more gruesome than Cerberus into this deal. They, they cash out about $1.75 billion. So they, but it wasn't enough. The, the, they, they brought the company public. They thought that during the pandemic, it was going to um, go to, you know, $40 a share, have a really rich valuation along the lines of, you know, a Walmart or a Costco. Investors weren't really buying it. Um, it's got pretty bad corporate governance. So they said, okay, we're going to offload it. We're going to, um, sell this company to somebody, you know, to another firm. And um, they got Kroger to to bid. Um, but they said, you know, just in case this merger doesn't go through or, you know, or because it's going to take a while for it to go through, we are going to have our cake and eat it too and pay ourselves uh, $4 billion in October on the way out. So they were going to recognize this massive, I think, $12 billion payout. But they you know, they weren't so sure. There's a new antitrust uh, environment in, in Washington, D.C. They they wanted they, a little bit of extra. You know, they wanted to make sure that they um, would get that uh, cash. And $4 billion, it's just an extreme um, amount of money for a, a, a dividend. Um, usually dividends um, are related to the amount that, of, of earnings that a company has. Um, that's in, in the public markets. Private equity firms take um, monster dividends out of companies all the time. It's sort of a form of legalized embezzlement. But this company is a public company now, so it doesn't get to sort of play by those same rules. But, you know, in this case, it doesn't necessarily threaten the solvency of the company, but it is an extremely aggressive move in this interest rate environment. It's going to result in, I'm sure it already has resulted in in, in understaffing, in paying, um, you know, vendors late, that kind of thing, um, because they don't have the cash. They don't have $4 billion in cash. They're they're dipping into their credit line to to give this to their shareholders. So... 
uh, it'll make it, uh, you know, a lot more enticing for um, Kroger to come in and maybe um, close down some of the, the stores that are really hurting. Okay, so Phil, I want to ask you about this because while you're leading this investigation into the overall merger, you also filed a brief in support of the Washington Attorney General's injunction specifically against the $4 billion payout. Tell us about that injunction. Well, the part of the story that Mo didn't tell is fool me once, shame on you. Oh, right. Fool me twice, shame on me. Albertsons did acquire Safeway, which us, you know, here in Colorado, we, we know this because my local store used to be in Albertsons. Now it's a Safeway. And some of the Albertsons used to be here got closed down. Turned out what happened was that was a merger that affected consumers. And to address the concerns, they spun off a lot of stores. And what did they do in the spun off? Well, Albertsons, the acquirer, found a strapped financially weak buyer, not positioned to run them well, ended up literally within a period of months going from selling off the assets to meet the requirements of an antitrust consent decree to reacquiring the assets because the acquirer ended up going bankrupt and they could buy the stores out of bankruptcy. And so the antitrust remedy in the last Albertsons merger became something close to a farce. It was a completely ineffectual remedy because they allowed a financially strapped entity to render the remedy meaningless. What's happening now? We're looking at the possibility of a repeat situation where they somehow spin off some stores in a way that is financially strapped because the acquired firm, which presumably is going to be, you know, maybe asked to spin off stores, is going to be less strong? Or what if the merger stopped full stop? What happens then? Well, they've already, again, put the uh, would-be competitor in a weak financial position by essentially stripping it down. $4 billion is a lot of money for a company to just shed. And then to do it by borrowing so they can shed the money. It's one thing to say, if we knew this merger was happening, don't worry, it'll all be okay in the back end. But the whole point of this investigation is we don't know this merger is happening. We have the real possibility of having to stop this merger or to have a serious oversight. And last time, that merger remedy didn't end up working effectively because of this problem. This time, we can't allow the same problem to happen, which is why we're joining with Washington to make the case against the special dividend. Okay, so I want to I want to ask a, a, the process question. It's a good follow to ask the process question. You're leading this investigation as a, a state attorney general. Uh, what do you hope to surface? And if and when you do surface things about it, what could the potential outcome be? Like, what could the federal government do? Uh, after your investigation? What what are some potential outcomes here? So this is important to underscore because the states and the federal government are working together. In this case, the Federal Trade Commission and a coalition of states that we are leading, working with other fellow states who are affected, like Washington, for example. Now, at the end of the day, we and Washington and California and other states could join the Federal Trade Commission in a single lawsuit. Or a state like Colorado, we could bring our own lawsuit, potentially even in state or federal court, because we are co-equal enforcers of antitrust law. So the process really is an open question. Is it going to be a unitary action? Would it be more than one action? That's going to have to get worked out. 
whatever happens, there's going to be coordination. There's going to be communication because we have to develop a overall theory or theories that could justify stopping the merger in court. If we want to stop the merger, we got to file an action in court. There's obviously scenarios like it happened last time with Albertson's Safeway that the parties agree to a set of commitments that are viewed as meaningful and able to address the competitive concerns. In this case, the fact that the last so-called set of remedies uh, ended up not working uh, should chasten us about accepting remedies that, again, may not be sufficient. So we're going to look long and hard at what the problem is what we believe the solution is. And if we think the solution is to stop the merger, then we'll be either working with the Federal Trade Commission and or in parallel to them. And that, of course, is a whole nother proceeding. But before we get to that proceeding, as you note, we have an investigation. And the goal of this investigation is to test and develop our legal and economic theories and to get the facts on the ground from consumers, from workers, from entrepreneurs, so we understand what's at stake. And if we're going to oppose the merger, we can make the best case possible. And if we're open to any discussions about remedies, we know what concerns we've got to address. Okay. So, Mo, I want to ask you the final question, which is knowing what we know about, for instance, the FTC, knowing what we know about the uh, the Biden administration, knowing what we know about state attorneys general across the country that may be involved in this, I'll just ask you to speculate. Which which way do you think this is going to go? I mean, are, are we at a place where the regulatory tide may have shifted enough where there is more energy behind antitrust enforcement and a merger like this may be blocked? I'm praying for it. Um, so here's the thing. Antitrust is not written. It is not equipped to deal with the problem of uh, cash extraction, with the problem of these firms that come in and, and weaken companies. Antitrust is is designed to deal with companies that with monopolies, so with companies that are strong. Private equity destroys comp- the competitiveness of firms. And it's right there in one of Apollo's um, annual reports. They say, we seek to invest in industries where there is little or no competition, right? It is, this is a pillar of their, um, of their strategy. But for the past 50, you know, 40, 50 years, private equity firms leveraged um, buyouts, corporate raiders have really seen antitrust as almost an ally. They'll help eliminate concentration, reduce concentration, or I don't know, there's, there are all sorts of, of uh, merger guidelines that suggest that maybe private equity um, acquirers are, are preferable to um, corporate acquirers. And it's just terrible. So I think that Lena Khan, the um, chair of the FTC, um, and Jonathan Cantor, the um, antitrust assistant AG. Um, the, I mean, there are a lot of um, folks in place um, in the Biden administration who have a really, really sophisticated understanding of the depth of our corporate concentration problems and are really understand how um, absolutely devastating this merger would be. But I think that there is also there's it's it's a tall order because um, it is just from a legal perspective, explaining this to, to antitrust attorneys and explaining this to judges, um, we're trying to do something that hasn't really been done before. I think personally, as somebody who follows both, um, you know, traditional corporate concentration and, um, and financialization of private equity uh, type uh, actors in the economy, I think that private equity really represents the biggest threat to our competitiveness as a nation. And this is a, this deal is a classic example. Um, if it goes through, your box of macaroni and cheese will be $4 uh, by 2024, 20, <laughs> I guarantee it. 
I know I said my last question was my last question, but Phil, I want to ask you one quick question, a sort of overview question. Mo's point about private equity, both how it relates to this deal and in general. I'm just curious, as 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 a state attorney general, somebody who's worked uh, in, in the federal justice department, do you think the overall general concerns about the private equity uh, takeover or expansion, mass expansion that we've seen in the economy. Do you think those concerns are are valid, overblown, uh, something to be really worried about? I mean, where do you come down on that? So we need to have a whole other conversation on that question, David, because there's sure. a lot of there there. But let me first pick up a point Mo said and maybe qualify it. I don't think antitrust maybe in the past had a certain level of uh, grace, if you will. But I think currently – uh, there's probably a little more suspicion about private equity buyers because the worry that I have, and in the story I just told about Alberts and Safeway and the spinoff, the, the entity who bought it was actually, I think, private equity back too. And they are looking at this through, and, and Mo explained this well, financial terms, can we get our money back regardless of what happens? Antitrust is about protecting consumers. And so private equity might get their money back in all sorts of ways that don't actually preserve competition. And the second point is private equity might not have a track record in the industry itself, might not have the incentives to be an ongoing concern. And so when we think about antitrust intersecting with private equity, where private equity is, let's say, purchasing divested assets, we need to have a level of concern. Are we getting what we need in the buyer or are we just getting a short-term player to make a quick buck who won't actually end up serving the competitive process? So I would qualify what Mo said. Second, to your point, David, there's a real dialogue happening now about private equity engaging in multiple industry relationships or multiple company relationships in the same industry in ways that advance collusion, in ways that undermine competition, and are otherwise a cause for concern. Those are now getting talked about, looked at, really for the first time because private equity's influence in our economy is greater. So I do believe that dialogue that both of you have kind of called for is starting to happen as we're taking a lot closer looks at what's behind the curtain, who's the owner, who's the equity holder, and what are their other involvements, and could those be untoward? Because you know, private equity is just another form of financing. In some cases, it might be benign, but in other cases, there can be a lot of things going on here that can either be the quick financial turn that shuts down the company, or it could be basically uh, manipulating the puppets, so to speak, so that we're not getting real competition, we're getting some forms of tacit collusion. Phil Weiser is the Democratic Attorney General of the state of Colorado. Mo Tekasik is a journalist and a senior, senior fellow at the American Economic Liberties Project, which you can find at economicliberties.us. Thank you to both of you for explaining a complex but hugely important situation, and we will be following it. Uh, and thanks uh, also to both of you for your work generally in raising uh, all of these issues uh, for the public to try to understand. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium get to hear our bonus segment called One Thing, in which the Levers reporters discuss the one thing that's been most on their minds. 
so they don't they don't regret the content they but they do regret the uh, the image that it created obviously where this wealthy plutocrat um, is calling for um, you know Americans to suffer for you know needlessly but to in order to make some economists feel a little bit better about what's happening and please be sure to like subscribe and write a review for lever time on your favorite podcast app one last favor to ask if you like this podcast and our reporting please tell your friends and family about the lever and the work we're doing here forward our emails to them encourage them to subscribe the only way independent media grows is by word of mouth so we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing until next time i'm david sirota keep rocking the boat